And so if somebody is carrying a shame-bound identity, instead of recognizing that there are these variables that are affecting our brain and the brain chemistry is affecting how we're feeling, they'll, they'll attribute it personally. It's me that's the flawed problem. And that we want to guard against. We The shame-free message is that um, we're separating our identity from circumstances, from behaviors, from um from those external variables and we're just seeing things from that perspective rather than taking everything on as this is who I am. Hi friends, it's Brittany Moses and you're listening to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast, the podcast at the intersection of faith, culture, and mental health, where we get to dive into expert insights and the realities of those with lived experience to help us live more insightful, connected, and wholehearted lives. We understand that the views shared here are respectively held by each individual and is not a substitute for professional care or an alternative to seeking personal help from a clinician or provider and is ours to discern. So sit with us. You're listening to episode 26. Welcome back to the Faith and Mental Wellness Podcast. So glad that you're here. Today we're talking about grace-based versus shame-based faith. We're exploring the difference between healthy conviction and condemnation, finding the balance with truth and grace. Sometimes that can be a fine line to tread, right? Not only with others and sometimes within the church, but even with ourselves and how we're defining ourselves based off of our situational circumstances, especially those that are out of our control sometimes. Today, I had a great guest and a good friend who was able to conversate with me on this topic, and that is Dr. Sean Horn. And Dr. Horn is a licensed psychologist, author, and inspirational speaker. In addition to her private practice in Spokane, Washington, she serves as faculty at the University of Washington's Medical School with Spokane Psychiatric Residency Program. She provides clinical supervision and mentoring to medical providers. She's a columnist for TOI Magazine, hosts Inspired Living Podcast, is a media consultant, um, host of YouTube Digital Practice, and author of Shame Buster. With over 27 years experience in the mental health field, she is now bringing the wisdom of the therapy room to larger audiences. So we are so honored that she joined us to share some of those insights with us. That being said, here's my conversation with Dr. Sean Horn on grace-based versus shame-based faith. Hi, Dr. Horn. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you. I'm so <laughs> glad to be here with you, Brittany. I know. I'm, I've been looking forward to this episode and today's topic, but before we jump in, Mm-hmm. I heard a little fun fact about yourself. Um, you've got some musical background going on in the family, and I want to hear all about that. Yes, I <laughs> I do. Everybody in my family is musical in some way, and one of my brothers has actually become quite famous in the music world. Mm-hmm. He's in an indie rock band called Local Natives, and his name is Kelsey. He wrote as one of his first songs is called Airplanes, and that was written about our grandpa. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I go to concerts with him, if I'm there, he'll dedicate it to me, and it's really cute. And so I have my famous, wild, goofy brother, Kelsey, with local natives. <laughs> I love that. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to look them up now because I hear they're pretty popular. Yeah, they were just on the Ellen DeGeneres show, which was really exciting. I was so, I was like, whoa, my gosh, I wish I was there with you. That was just amazing. Wouldn't it be incredible to meet Ellen? 
right? Do you ever <laughs> tell him things like just to keep him humble? Because I do with my brother. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think he doesn't think long enough to uh, like he just does and then thinks. It kind of runs in our That's family. So we, we all have a little bit of that squirrel syndrome. So um, I think he keeps himself pretty humble. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That is good. Yeah, I yeah. love it. So cool. So mm-hmm. I'm so happy to have you on. You know, we've been following each other for some time and have just been feeling very like-minded as well in some of the work that we've been doing. But also mm-hmm. you specifically focus a lot on on shame-based work and yes. um and uh, and have provided some really great wisdom in that area in the intersectionality of faith and mental health. Uh, and so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself mm-hmm. and your background leading up to the work that you're doing today in psychology? Sure, yeah. So I am a licensed psychologist and have been in the mental health field now for like, I think I counted it the other day, 28 years, and have had a private practice in Spokane, Washington. I'm also faculty at the University of Washington Medical School, where I supervise and train some of the psychiatrists in their residencies. And I'm a columnist now with Twa Magazine, which is a super cool online magazine that addresses all sorts of mental health issues and lifestyle issues. And so when I was in grad school in the 90s, we had a professor that came to our program that was a shame researcher. Mm. And she, when she came to our school, I was put on her research team and she was my new advisor and introduced me to the topic of shame. And at the time, I had just had my son. I was a new mom, and I was in her class, and she pointed out the fact that shame, toxic shame, is at the core of all of our emotional and behavioral difficulties. And Mm -hmm. when she – it was so compelling that I thought, oh, my gosh, why are we not all addressing this if this is the core, the root of just about everything? Uh, Of course, exceptions is um, some medical stuff that uh, like schizophrenia and just things that we are are woven into our DNA. But in general, these are um, these are things that really fuel a lot of our struggles. And I just wanted to make sure that I didn't pass that on to my children. And I started to pursue Um, learning more. And I ended up writing my dissertation on shame-free parenting Mm. and had the opportunity to, I was approached by a publisher, New Harbinger Press, and they wanted me to write a book and we wrote it. And then at the last minute they pulled out and they said, it's an aversive topic. We think people have shame about shame and they're not going to want this book. And, And at the time I didn't know where to go from there. So I just abandoned the project. But then six years later, Brene Brown came out with her first book, and everything in her book was in my dissertation. <laughs> so I'm I was, like, oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I'm right. grateful for her in bringing yeah. us to the social conscience. And now, when I when I first started this journey on social media and um, expanding my audience, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to talk about or what was going to be my niche, and. I didn't expect it to be this shame platform. But what I'm finding is that it's there's such a desire from people and audiences to learn more 
that that is the topic that I'm frequently being asked to speak on and teach on. And when I do, they just want more and more. So it really does bring or highlight the point that this really is something that people are connecting with and really wanting healing on. So for that reason, I'm starting to really narrow in on addressing shame and teaching as it's being requested. That's great. And I love that you do that. Um, Thank you. It's like it, it totally is one of those themes that just keep coming up reoccurringly. And you don't even realize that it's shame. Like right. in the moment, that's what's so crazy about it. I yeah. remember years ago sitting in a therapy session with a clinical psychologist after coming out of some major life changes in my own life. And as I was speaking, she was like, I keep hearing a themes of shame and failure. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't even translated it was that. But mm-hmm. once she broke that open, I was like, whoa, like, Mm-hmm. I'm translating things through shame and it's creating this cycle. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's such important work. And like you said, I I did read all the Brene Brown books <laughs> and that cracked everything wide open for me and my personal work as well. And so I love that you're doing it and you're, you're also doing it from a faith-based perspective. And, um, and so it's so needed. It's so it needed. Is. And you bring up a really good point that most of the time when you introduce, oh, you're you're addressing shame, people take a step back and they're shocked and they go, what? No, like because the, we perceive shame as being reserved for these really extreme and heavy situations. But there another language for shame that is talking about toxic shame, but it's using a different word is when we say perfectionism, Mm -hmm. when we say low self-esteem, when we say low um, confidence, when we talk about defensiveness, when we talk about triggers, these are eating disorders or being a workaholic. These are all expressions of toxic shame. And so it's not, it doesn't have to be in this very, um, in a way that society has already identified as problematic, such as drug and alcohol problems or uh, pornography or um, sexual traumas and so forth. It can be in the way we show up with our, our appearance, the clothing, the things that we put value on that we say this, because I have this car, I, the world will see that I'm okay because I have this degree, this profession, this association, this body, these clothes, this money, then the world will see that I'm okay. I call those our shame shields that are what we attach to, what our ego attaches to and says, because of this, I am okay. I will be wanted. I will be desired. I will be included and have opportunity. And without that, I'm in danger. And mm-hmm. so it fuels those those driving forces to value external things, value people's perceptions and and so forth. And that is an expression of shame alive and well and in our lives. <laughs> Absolutely. And with you saying that, what immediately comes to my mind is social media, of course, Mm -hmm. because um, while obviously social media is a tool and it depends on its user, it does, it is an image based, you know, um, platform. And so it does highlight a lot of those, a lot of those, uh, mm-hmm. a lot of those things, messages, mm-hmm. a lot of those messages. So have mm-hmm. you explored just maybe some of the nuances of that in any of your shame work? And if so, yeah. what have been your insights and observations? You know, something I, I 
keep reacting to every time I see it is I'll see people put these posts and say, if you see, if there's a page or you're following someone that doesn't make you feel good, then get rid of it, shut it down. And I react to that because part of me wants to say, yes, but why, why is that? Is it, is it really coming from that or is it coming from the dialogue inside of you that is getting triggered by that, um, that external trigger? Mm-hmm. And is it that I see this, this person that it has an association that I want. And so when I see that, I feel bad because in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, they don't like me. They don't want me. I'm not included. That's the problem is the self-talk inside. So we have to really do that inner work rather than trying to make the outside be how we think it should be. So our inside is okay. And that I think is misguided. I, I really think social media is like an ultimate projective test. <laughs> do you know? Right. Like projective, yeah. The classic ink block test where you show people and say, what do you see? And, and people go, oh, and whatever they say that they see gives us information about their, their thought process and their belief systems. And so when we look at something such as social media, it gives us an opportunity to examine what surfaces for us, what what thoughts come to our mind, what feelings are brought up. Uh, and that gives us information on things we can target and begin to heal. So in some ways, you could almost use it as a therapeutic tool to learn about yourself in that in giving you the opportunity to step out as an observer and look at what thoughts are coming into the gates of your mind, what belief systems are speaking to you mm-hmm. that we need to clean up and heal. The the pictures we see, they're just objects. They're objects that we attach meaning and stories to because we know that that does not tell us about that person or reflect the quality of their internal life. And I always tell people, guard against comparing your insides to other people's outsides. And Instagram is showing us their outsides and we're evaluating it from our insides. And that is just a hot mess right there. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we we want to not build up a story from these pictures we see. All they are is pictures and they're just words of expression. But we really want to then, if we use it as an opportunity to see what surfaces, then I think it can give us good information about ourselves. Right. Thank you so much for expounding on that. I 100% agree. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems to accompany a scarcity or a scarcity mentality as well, where Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, maybe when we're seeing these things, maybe they genuinely have some positive traits that we desire to grow in. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and even highlighting, okay, maybe that's just an area I want to work on, you know, or maybe they're doing something in the same line of work that you want to be doing or that Mm -hmm. you're doing and they just do it really well. And Mm -hmm. that whole scarcity mentality of there's only room for one great person doing this. (laughs) And and that's just not true, right? Right. Um, Especially when it's a great work, it's like everybody needs it. And um and I, it seems to accompany one another, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Here's another point, though, that, see, part of the shame-free work is really helping people to have realistic expectations about their life and their bodies and their biologies. And and so when I'm teaching shame-free parenting, I one of the most important things we need to do is help parents understand the developmental level of their children and what their the child's brain is capable of because one of the ways we get shamed 
is when we're expected to have a cognitive ability that our brain is not able to do yet, mm. or we're expected to have um, behaviors and insight that will is not appropriate at that age. Right. So we end up being expected to be skilled at things we weren't taught, to have self-control that our body's not able to do. Um, for example, I often tell people that when the baby's body is developing, the muscles that we need to um, be able to go to the bathroom on command, you know, to be able to use the toilet, it's not developed until over the age of two, typically. So when parents start to try to potty train their child at one, it's, this is a shame bound, uh, it has the potential to be a shaming experience because that bot, their body is unable to do that yet. Mm. So that, that's a great example of being expected to do something that your body doesn't have the ability to do yet. So how I want to tie that in here is that one of the things a lot of people don't know about social media is I, I want to talk about the the neuro um, functioning, our neuro mm-hmm. response to social media. And I just recently was listening to a discussion on this, that when we are interacting with people, we walk into a room, I see you, I have my senses, my body is picking up on cues from your body um, that we pick up from more than just our five senses, from um, other sensory systems we have in our body that where we pick up pheromones, you know, where we're, we have smells that we're absorbing, we have energies that we're absorbing. And all these, all this information is letting our brain know that we're safe. We're safe. It's okay. Everything we're connected. Right. And, and I'm, and I'm in this moment connected with this person. When we are connecting with people ver- in this capacity, where we're looking at a screen, our body is not given the opportunity to have the information it needs to know that you're okay. And so what it does is it kicks in the survival brain and the survival brain then will become hypervigilant and try to search for other cues to let it know we're okay. And that's when we start going to the comparing and we start going to the associations because our brain is searching for, am I okay in this context? And Mm -hmm. And so we, it pulls for more insecurity, what we typically associate with insecurity of why am I comparing myself? Why am I um, feeling um, vulnerable? And we'll attribute it to a low self-esteem, low self-confidence, but it's really the survival brain that is mm-hmm. kicking into this hypervigilance because it needs more information to know that I'm safe in this context. And then the other thing is that we get dopamine crashes as well. And when we're on social media, it increases our levels of dopamine and sustains them for longer times. So then when we're off of the internet, then we get the dopamine crashes. And so you get an increase in low mood with the longer you're on social media. So a shaming way of interpreting that is to think it's me, I'm the problem, I'm now depressed. I don't feel good about who I am. Instead of recognizing that we're having a neurological response that is affecting our brain chemistry and contributing to that low mood and the desire to be on the social media more frequently and to 
to have that comparing mindset. So there's a lot of biological responses to social media that would be really helpful to be aware of because if people's moods start to go low and they start to get depressed and feel insecure, it could be that they need to uh, take a do a social media diet so right. they can rebalance their brain chemistry and it not be necessarily about a belief system you're holding it could just be that you need to help your body rebalance those chemicals. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey guys, we're going to get right back to the conversation because trust me, I know you'll want to hear the whole thing. But I quickly wanted to share with you this exciting new partnership I have with BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. One of the questions I get asked a lot are how you can go about starting therapy. A number of you are located around the country and even around the world. And as helpful as I often like to be, sometimes I find myself limited in being able to provide the one-on-one resources that you need. Well, I'm happy to say that one option I can share with you today is BetterHelp's online therapy and counseling services with licensed mental health professionals. Since I know a lot of you guys want more faith-based counseling as well, I'm even more excited to share that they also have another service called Faithful Counseling, which has licensed Christian therapists and counselors who are certified by their state, where you can receive licensed counseling using your computer, tablet, or mobile phone through video calls, phone calls, or text messaging. So I use BetterHelp Therapy. I've been using it myself, and it's been super convenient, you know, between school, work, and really just having someone to check in with on a regular basis has been so important for my own mental health. So what happens is when you sign up, you'd be matched with a counselor in 24 hours or less, and you can securely message your counselor anytime, any day, you know, day or night, and get replies within 24 to 48 hours. BetterHelp also has group in our sessions every week where you can learn in groups directly from licensed counselors on multiple topics like relationships and ways to overcome anxiety. Uh, I also found out that financial aid is available for those who qualify and you can apply for financial aid during the signup process. Hello. Additionally, listeners of the Faith and Mental Wellness podcast like you get 10% off of their first month using my specific link in the show notes below. And like I said, I know a number of you are around the world. BetterHelp is available worldwide. And if you want to get started and get matched with a counselor within the next 24 hours, I have links to both BetterHelp and Faithful Counseling in the show notes. I should mention that it is not a crisis line, okay? If you are experiencing a crisis, I have a link to all the crisis lines by country in the show notes as well. Check it out and let me know what you think. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Have you ever heard that before about the the neuro response to social media and how that works? Not totally in that context. I feel like in different ways, definitely the dopamine surges. Yeah. But I mean, tied all together, that makes complete and total sense. Yeah. I actually, I, per, I, I don't know um, if you have like certain, I don't know, rituals around your social media life or not. But I recently, um, I actually log out of my profile. Like when oh. I'm done for the day mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. um, I actually completely log out of my profile um, yeah. instead of having it kind of on in the background of my life and having that hum, kind of that hum. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just for me personally. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then that way, if I want to get on, it's like, okay, I have to log on. I have to make a conscious choice <laughs> mm-hmm. to get on and, 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 and engage and re-enter the community, so to speak. Right. Um, as you saw, I have that auto response. <laughs> yes. On my profile, that's like, hey, guys, I'm away, but I'll be back kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's been really helpful. Yeah, that's um, so Personally, great. Um, not necessarily because um, I'm – I at this point in my in my life look around and compare a ton but I think I'm in my own personal life trying to grow personally like grow deeper roots in certain areas Mm -hmm. um, of my studies and of uh, just life in general and I feel like separating that sometimes sometimes allows time for and space for those roots in our lives to take deep roots deeper roots um, yes if that makes yeah. sense oh so much we get information overload and yeah. our brains get stressed and overwhelmed and uh, it it really can cause a lot of problems and so it, if somebody is carrying a shame bound identity Instead of recognizing that there are these variables that are affecting our brain and the brain chemistry is affecting how we're feeling, they'll they'll attribute it personally. It's me that's the flawed problem, and that we want to guard against. We the shame free message is that um, we're separating our identity from circumstances, from behaviors, from um, from those external variables, and we're just seeing things from that perspective rather than taking everything on as this is who I am. Yeah, I think that's a really great point that you make because it kind of relates to mental health in general from what I've seen. It's like we internalize Mm -hmm. these things that are happening to us um, Mm -hmm. or these things that may be happening to someone when it's like, no, but really there are all these other things that are kind of outside of your control that are contributing to it. Like you said, the brain chemistry, the body that's being activated, um, the survival brain turning on, you know, these Right. Things are kind of automatic and they're not really within your control, but it feels like the after effects feel like it's something wrong with you that you're having these feelings mm-hmm. um, instead of, like you said, kind of taking the space to go, okay, my body's activated right now or, you know, these systems mm-hmm. are activated right now and yes. kind of talking to our bodies and saying, hey, I'm safe we're just going to take a break. We're fine, you know, right, um, right. and integrating it in that way um, for mental health in general. Mm-hmm. I find that I have a daily, this is the daily dialogue in therapy with right? people is normalizing <laughs> their situation and saying, no, it's normal to feel this level of sadness given this circumstance. Yeah. It's normal to feel this anxious given this circumstance. You reminded me of this uh, story that came to me where there was a college student who was anxious and and searching for or was in services with a provider and the provider and I were in consultation with each other and had mentioned that they were so anxious they were having night sweats mm. and I said well does this student live in the dorm? And they said, yes. And I said, okay, have you slept on a dorm mattress before? And they said, yes. And I go, what are dorm mattresses made of? And they go plastic. plastic. (laughs) And they go, what, what happens when you sleep on plastic? You think you're having menopause. You sweat so bad, you (laughs) know? (laughs) And I mean, this is an example of what we forget is that this student was sweating like crazy at night because it was sleeping on plastic, not because of the anxiety disorder. But right. yet they'll go to a provider and say, I'm so anxious and I'm sweating all night. And they go, oh, no, you're sweating. Okay, you have anxiety disorder. 
And this is where I think maybe this is a contribution why we're contributing to how we're having so many more people diagnosed with mental health mm. is that without doing a really thorough evaluation and looking at the context, we it's easy for us to conclude a diagnosis rather than looking at uh, the lifestyle of the person. They say one out of five college students have mental health um, or anxiety, I think they I came across some stat and I'm thinking, well, okay, let's think about this. What happens when you're in college? You're oh, not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can tell you, I can tell you right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what are the factors that would affect yeah. their, yeah, they're not sleeping. They're not eating really well. They're stressed. Right. They have a lot of demand. So yeah, you're going to be anxious, but maybe we're going to target getting them to sleep better, eat better. It, it may not be that they're anxious because they have this biological predisposition to anxiety. It mm-hmm. could be that they're anxious because all they're eating is candy and drinking coffee or sodas mm-hmm. or they're hungover every day because um, they're partying too much. So these are these are things we need to think about rather than attributing it to the person and and jumping to those conclusions. Right. Mm-hmm. That being said, on the uh on the heels of hardworking and perfectionism, um, mm-hmm. something interesting that came up this past week in a discussion was about how sometimes we are convinced uh, that shame could be used as a tool to kind of kick us in the pants, right? Mm-hmm. To get us moving. Mm-hmm. So we use, we like, we believe that without shame, in a way, we wouldn't get things done if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. And so can we talk about how, you know, how the the cycle of shame works and why it rarely leads to the long-term change that we really want to see? Mm -hmm. And that we have other tools besides shame to get our, to motivate us to get things done in our life. Right. Yes. You're, you're bringing up, this is a, this is a frequent discussion in the, in the world of shame where they talk about the pursuit of excellence and how some people are really driven and they just are, they are competitive, but they will describe that the being competitive is really helpful for them in that it motivates them. It um, gives them a challenge, a, a target that they want to accomplish. So really, I think the the big, the question I would have is the motive. What is yeah. the motive for that? If the motive is that I just like achieving, it just feels good, it's fun. My brain likes um, to be challenged in that way. Think of like uh, golden retrievers. They, they like to have puzzles that they can solve. You know, some of these breeds that like to be working breeds, they, they like to be mentally challenged. And so when you have that type of a, a dog, you want to make sure that you're creating these mental challenges for them because it's fun for them. Mm-hmm. And so some of us that have just, I mean, we got a lot of power under that hood and we just like to be driven and, and solve in these puzzles and accomplish and it feels good. In that way, then then go for it. That's great. You're you're fulfilling your um, your passions. You're fulfilling what energizes you, and they like to find people that are accomplishing more than them to kind of set a target. Like I want to achieve that level, and then go on the next one. But if the motive is I want to be the best, so that the world sees I'm the best, then that's shame in action. If it's I want to be this, so that the world will, I could control people's perception of me. 
I can control what opportunities are open for me, then that that could potentially be shame motivated. So that's something we want to look at is what is the motivating force that is driving that. And so I'm not sure that saying um, shame is a good motivator is um, the word that they want to use. Right. <clears throat> I know some coaches will use that where they'll um, berate their players. And some players, if they get angry, they perform better. Um, so they'll say that they like it when people um, speak to them that way. But I, I wonder if that really... Um, I mean, that's just something to look at for them if how and why is that such a motivating force. But in yeah. shame, in shame psychology, we say there's a difference between healthy shame and toxic shame. And so healthy shame is that conviction we have where our, our self feels um, convicted and we go, oh my gosh, I should not do that. That was not good. That's going to get me in trouble. I don't like that negative consequence. And so then it motivates them to not have that problem occur again. So that's really healthy. That's where we see people develop their conscience, their conscientiousness mm -hmm. and to be sensitive and compassionate because they are having that connection when um, it's appropriate to feel bad or it's appropriate to feel remorse or regret, uh, to feel sorry to recognize the trouble that that behavior is getting them in. So this is helpful, but that's still focused on external things. It's focused on that choice I made was a poor choice, that um, lack of action I took caused problems for me. So I'm gonna let that, that conviction teach me so that I can improve my performance in life. I can improve right. the next time it comes. But toxic shame is a message that I made a mistake and therefore I am a mistake. They take their conviction and they go, I am a flawed person. I am ineffective. And then they just lay in it. You know, they just kind of uh, merge themselves with that identity. And then it becomes oppressive and it does not make them better for that experience. It doesn't uplift them or help them improve their performance. They just kind of resign and say, this is who I am. And then they will continue to have behaviors and choices that will mirror that belief that they've adopted. And they go, see, I really am this. Right. And, and that's where you get that confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. prophecy kind of cycle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I was, yeah, it, it, I, it's, it really is that fine line and that distinction, like you're saying, between I made a bad choice and I am a bad person kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that that is, well, not I'm guessing, but <laughs> it's mm -hmm. safe to safe to say that, you know, maybe the difference between those who might be more resilient mm -hmm. in, in some of the troubles that they face, maybe versus those who feel consistently victimized and underwater Mm -hmm. is that that self-talk between, okay, I made these bad choices or, you know, I didn't do as well as I should have or whatever it is, but I can improve on that mm -hmm. versus these things define me and my worth and identity as a whole, which is so easy to do. I yes. feel like it's to just internalize it because yes. we can be like kind of egocentric by nature. Yeah. But I think that... um 
just highlighting that that difference is huge. I almost mm-hmm. would love for you to share it again. <laughs> yes. Just for those in the back. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I want to touch on what you just said. Some after nine eleven, they did some resilient studies on how is it that these people all had the same experience and some people were resilient and some people weren't. Right. And what they found is that the people who were not resilient, they were marked by three traits. They personalized the event. Of course this happened because it's me and bad stuff always happens to me. They generalize it. And this is how life is. It It's always going to be this way. And they don't feel powerful. They they're dis, they feel helplessness, and there's nothing I can do about it. Mm. But resilient people um, saw it circumstantial. Well, I just happened to be there, wrong place, the wrong time. They saw it as an episode where, yeah, life does have struggles and difficulties, but there's also good things that happen in life. And then they empower themselves to do something that they can do. Like, well, I can volunteer and I can help uh, with the Red Cross Mm. or I can join a group and help other people heal. And so that this um, these differences that they notice is also affected by shame, because if somebody had been given a shame bound um, mindset, they had a shame bound identity then the consequences of that is you think bad stuff will happen to you because you deserve it. You can't trust the world because the world is dangerous and unsafe and there's nothing you can do about it. And But when you're shame-free, you have the mindset of seeing things external as circumstantial and not as defining your life, defining your identity and your life. And so this is one of the reasons why it's so important that we spread a shame-free message is because ultimately, if people feel that every problem they experience, every circumstance that's hard for them is due to their identity, then when life really squeezes them and they're in the grip, it will open up the potential for suicidal thinking. Right. Because then if I'm the problem, then getting rid of my life will be the solution. And this is why we have to spread a shame-free message and know that every day is a new day. Every day there is hope. We can learn. We can heal. We can get up. And it is not you that is the problem or your story or your circumstance. It's the behavior. It's the circumstance. It's the event, the trauma that's the problem. And that we can do something about. Amen. And Mm -hmm. we are just living in a human experience, you know, Mm -hmm. and like you said, these things happen. So thank Mm -hmm. you so much for um, speaking to that because that is um, a really common theme. Um, Yes. Just that internalizing and turning it into identity. Like you said earlier, that seems to come out of a number of mental conditions, mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess just switching gears here for a second into mm-hmm. the faith-based um, aspect of things and even the layperson or the pastor um, that's listening to this um, or even just the believer, you know, um, thinking about it in con- in a biblical context or in context of, of the church, in context of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so... In scripture, right, there are, Mm -hmm. there's a clear call to like repentance of sins and Mm -hmm. um, accountability. And, um, and, and so I've seen this taken two ways. You know, I've seen it taken to an extreme where people are, you know, hitting people over the head with these things, Uh you know, and like you said, kind of the shame fueled 
coaxing. Um, And then Mm -hmm. you have the other side that is, um, that kind of doesn't regard these things at all, right? That Mm -hmm. we do have a calling to pay attention to our convictions and to turn away from, Mm -hmm. you know, these self-destructive behaviors and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, What would you say, because you've you've talked about this before, is Mm -hmm. the difference between shame-based versus grace-based church families approaches and Mm -hmm. how do we find a good medium where yes Mm -hmm. we are called to you know walk in the way of Mm -hmm. of christ and we're called to um you know we're called to obedience you know um but at the same time we are not saved in our own works you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yes i'd love to to expound and peel the layers back on that. Yes. Okay. So I love this topic. I love how Jesus represents um, the ultimate dialectic, which is opposites existing at the same time. When we look at the him dying on the cross for our sins, you go to some churches where say you are such a sinner and so unworthy that he had to die on the cross for your sins. You go to another church that says you're such a precious child of God that he loves so much that he died on the cross for your sins. Well, which is it? And it's a dialectic. Both exist together. We struggle and we're precious. We are unworthy and we are worthy together. And so the shame bound approach has an unrealistic mindset that says it has no tolerance for the human condition. It has no tolerance for sin, for struggles. It's rule bound. It's saying do this or else. And we know in psychology, what studies have found is that how you perceive your earthly father is often how we perceive our heavenly father. Mm. So if you had a critical, judgmental uh, father, then we perceive God as critical and judgmental. If your father abandoned you and neglected you, we perceive heavenly father as abandoning us and neglecting us. If our earthly, earthly father was loving and accepting, then it's easy for us to perceive God this way. So the way we think about God and and perceive God and receive God is very much affected by our experiences with the elders in our life, the men in our life, and how they treated us or didn't treat us, touched us or didn't touch us. It does um, affect that perception. And so the shame-bound church, if if you have these legalistic people in your life that are giving you these rules of intolerance and perfection that no one can attain, but yet everyone's pretending like they are, it gets us so bound up where you go, I can't let people know about my struggles or else, and I might even go to hell. I might even be rejected by God. And when it when am I when I was in my doctoral program, I went to George Fox University and we took seminary along with our classes. And one of the professors said, the Ten Commandments are not about these rules you follow or else. They're about freedom. They're freedom. If they're life instructions, so to speak, that if you abide by these things, you are likely to live free of the consequences of them, free and having peace and joy and freedoms in life. And so it started to point out to me this idea that a lot of the instructions were given are for our best interests so that we live a life well. They're not about this do it or else. 
And that takes us away from knowing the relationship with God, knowing how God shows up in our in our life and when we're connected to God, how things flow in a in a much uh, in a way that's to our advantage. Recently, I was doing a word study on um, scripture, a, a piece of scripture that said, when you um, when you're connected with God, that you will, I think, how did it say it? Like abide by God's statutes. And so, to me, that sounds very rule like that you will follow His statutes. Like in an obedient way, I will follow His rules. But my father-in-law um, speaks Hebrew and Latin, and he is a old biblical scholar. And so I asked him to do a word study on it. And the the way that statutes and abide are interpreted in that scripture, it literally means like you are merged in the knowing of God so that when God says, you're at a path, and it says, do I go right or left? You'll hear God say, right is the way to go. And you go, oh, yes, okay. And so then you turn right because <laughs> you mm-hmm. you have that communication. It's almost like you have a microphone in your ear and you're walking and God's talking to you. He goes, okay, now turn right, now turn left and open that door. And you're like, all right, all right. And because you're connected, you're in the spirit, you're abiding in the spirit. That's what that means. It's not follow this rule or else and obey it or else. And that really takes us away from the spirit of our relationship with God. So a grace-based approach is bringing us into the context of a loving heavenly father that wants to be known, deeply known. He wants his character to be known. He wants his um, wisdom to be known. And when we are in fellowship with God and we merge with that, then we have the wisdom and knowledge that comes from being in relationship with God because now the Holy Spirit is with us. And, and that is the intention of that um, of what Scripture, I believe, is trying to teach. And so in a shame-bound church, if you're struggling, they, they focus on, pro- on appearance management. Don't let people see because you can't be a sinner. You can't be human. You have to be perfect, obedient, and righteous. And if you do, you're going to be exiled and rejected. The shame-free church says, hey, being human is really hard. That's why God did all he did for us and why Jesus did what he did for us. And we love you. So come into us and let us support you. Let us champion. Let's pray for you. And and just be resources for you. And that is focused on problem management. So we want to have a grace-based approach. It's so sad to me when people go to churches and, and then they have a problem and they're pushed out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you have a problem, anything you need to come in and not be yeah. pushed out. And so we want to just recognize that we all struggle. There's no exceptions to this. And if we believe we don't, and if we believe we're better than, we're, be, we're deceiving ourselves. And, mm-hmm. and so we just have to come to, uh, with each other and know that we just aren't going to know the whole picture and really come in a position of love to all. And what shame-bound people do, they get really scared of that because they're fear-driven, what is controlling their behavior is fear. Right. Don't do this or else. And that when we look at the moral developmental stages, like Kohlberg's moral development stages, um, the yes. lower stages are <laughs> do you remember? Like, yes, what they I say, do. In, what how do you remember those or tell me? I remember that 
I now that now for some reason I can't remember the exact labels, but there's a fixed yeah. mindset. You know, there's kind of the lower levels of oh, I do it because I'm not I'm not going to do this because I don't want to get caught, kind right. of thing. And then there's a level of um, well, I, I'm not going to do yeah. this because I feel genuinely convicted by this, and you're thinking about others, and yeah. um, you're open to to basically just uh, evolving in those convictions. Yes. Um, and so I apologize. I don't have all the operational words yeah, here. No, that's fine, but I just, when you said it, it yeah. brought it all back to my mind. And I'm like, yes, yes, speak on that. Yeah. The, well, the earlier stages, if it feels good, it's good. If it feels bad, it's bad. Yeah. Then if it's, if I get in trouble with mom, it's bad. If I don't get in trouble, it's okay. Then if I break the rules, it's bad. If I don't, then it's okay. But ultimately the highest level if is an intrinsic motivation of it. If it violates my belief system and right. my values, it's not okay. And that's where we want to be. And I, I think the research says like 5% of the world is actually yes. at that, right? Yeah, you're right. That's yes. Right. So that's where we want to be. And if people are rule bound, like don't do this or else you go, then they're motivating at that lower level of fear. But God wants us to be um, alive with him every day to where we're letting our intuition, we're letting our inner nudges, our inner convictions inform us and lead us in this way where maybe our head is telling us something different. Mm-hmm. and But our heart is saying, Mm-mm, don't do that. Mm-mm. And we don't know why, but it's the Holy Spirit in us that is um, nudging us and saying, this is what I want you to do. And so that is why we need to know God intimately so that we can be guided by that inner voice and know that we are making those decisions based on this value system, based on what God wants for us because God loves us and wants us to be free, not because don't do that or lightning bolt's going to come down and then I'm going to see burning fire somewhere, you know? <laughs> That's right. Like, that that's not knowing God. That's just approaching life from this lower level of moral development, which means that when no one's looking and nobody knows and you're not going to be caught, then you're going to be doing that stuff because there's no consequence for it. And when people function there, they will use fear to try to control their children because they know that, you know, that's how they are controlled. Um, right. And that's all a hot mess. So that is how I would one distinction I would make between shame bound churches and religious mindsets and shame free um, churches and more relationship mindset. Now, in regards to the church and people getting triggered by Christians and by the church, what's happening in those situations is that they've had a church wound by the people and the institution that hurt them and gave them a message, a shaming message or a rejection. And this is coming from that external mindset. And how we get shamed is when the outside world says to us who we are, and we give it that power. And we say, you have the power to define me. You have the power to tell me who I am. But as Christians, we must understand, and as adults, that no one has that power, that the church is built by human beings that are flawed and defective, and they're going to make mistakes. They're going to have interpretations of scripture that's problematic. So how we navigate through that is keep the essential essential and the inessential inessential. So when you go to church, you just kind of look for those essentials that are important to you. And then that's, and then when it it goes outside of that, you kind of take it or leave it. 
we do not, we no longer give them the power to define us and we take that back. So if somebody is rejecting or they're shame dumping on you, we, the shame free understanding is that how people treat you is more to do with them than it is to do with you. And people don't really see us. They see the version that they've developed in their mind of who we are. And so if it goes south and people get funky and weird again, you know, just know that that's them. There's something that may be going on. There's something that may be going on with their life and their stories that we don't have privilege, privilege information about. But know that you're showing up to see God, to connect with God, and to also impact the lives of other people around you. If we all pull out because we say the church is sick, then the people who recognize that the church is sick, who could make that church heal and be better, are all leaving. So the church is going to stay sick. <laughs> so we need to stay in involved to bring the love of Christ into the church and to impact it in a positive way. So if you have that knowledge that it's not they're not being how they should, just turn it around and say, am I being the person that I want to experience in the church? Am I loving others in the way that I want to be loved? And know that no one can define you, only God. And no one can tell you how God defines you or sees you, only God. So so we must know the character of God. We must begin the journey of pursuing the knowledge of how God sees us and take that power back. Amen. And throwing out there that there are very healthy and vibrant and lovely, you know, scripture-based, Bible-based churches out there. You know, and I always want to encourage that as well. Yes, <laughs> that there yes. are options, and um, if something is just far too toxic to the point that it's affecting your mental health and you're not growing, or it's causing a lot of issues, like you can opt out mm-hmm. and choose a healthier church. You know, yeah. but if we we it can really set depends, ourselves, you know. Yes. And we can set ourselves up if we if we have this black and white mindset and we find a church and we go, oh, it's a grace based church. They're going to be loving and accepting. And and then the moment they're not, then it gets generalized like, oh, here they are. But the the dialectic way will say this church is a grace based church that will make mistakes and will say the wrong thing or hurt somebody or some pastor might come out um, revealing that they've been engaging in something they shouldn't have. And so just we just know that that's going to be there because they're human. And so it's not either or. It's that this is a grace-based church. I feel comfortable. They are promoting the values I want them to promote. And if it goes south or if someone struggles, then that's just that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of projecting, you know, people mm-hmm. onto God sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, yes. God is who he is regardless of how people are and – People are messy and, you know, Mm -hmm. myself included, I'm not perfect. None Mm -hmm. of us are perfect. And Mm -hmm. um, anytime you get a bunch of people together, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, but there's redemption in it. And so thank you so much for for adding that on because I think that's very big and especially in today's world. Um, I think that Mm -hmm. the way things operate today are very different than some years ago, <laughs> mm-hmm, than decades mm-hmm. ago, maybe. There was a lot of 
control and fear and um and i think now it's moving toward just realizing who god is and living in the spirit of freedom and, and, and but of truth and having that balance so i i love everything that you've said i had like I have like, I feel like I have 10 more questions to add on to that, but I won't. I'm going to respect everyone's time. But the first thing that came to my mind, like in my own personal life is basically you talking about being spirit led versus Mm -hmm. like having a spirit led life and, you know, and how scripture talks about how the word is hidden in our hearts. And it's just so true. Like, you know, when you're led by the spirit and the word is in your heart, you kind of just have these restraints in your life of conviction that only are going to let you go so far before you feel, you know, some shift in your spirit about maybe I shouldn't be doing this, you know, Mm -hmm. or maybe I shouldn't be going in this direction or what have you. Or I also believe God is faithful to put people in your life Mm -hmm. and signs in your life to kind of make sure that you are not straying, you know, off too far. And if you do, you know, he is loving enough to bring us back in. But um, so something that comes up, and I guess maybe this does go back to the fear, but the fear based kind of um, teaching is that no, I'm telling you these rules, you know, and handling it this way because I love you. You, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And it and it's spoken to as love, that kind of legalistic, uh, authoritarian, rules-based thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's labeled as love. And I've seen that a lot growing up too. Oh, where it's yeah. like, no, it is love that I am being this way with you because I'm saving your soul. You know, how, yeah. How do we speak to that? <laughs> yeah, it involves a lot of trust, right? Because yeah. if... Um, if God says, I'm doing this because I love you, we have to trust that God really does. And the the problem that comes up for that is that if we have not known life to be safe and we haven't quite um, known, have that knowledge in our heart, like we might have it in our head, like, oh, yes, God, I can trust him. But in the heart, we're like, mm, really? You know, we don't mm-hmm. quite haven't gotten to the level yet that we go, Oh, yeah, I trust God. I know in my heart because I've had these experiences. I've had this connection. And what deceives us is that we often will be in these moments where we'll have these convictions, but our head will overrule them because our head wants to know. It wants to control our fears by knowing all that it can. And when we don't understand why we're having that conviction, we will overrule it with our intellectual knowledge. And we'll say, no, I'm, I'm being too dramatic, or that doesn't make sense, or I don't, I don't understand this, right? So then we'll do something else that we think would make sense that God wants. And then when it goes south, then we'll blame God for it. And mm. really what happened in that moment is that we betrayed ourselves by not trusting that we can trust our inner voice, we can trust our intuition and not overrule it with our head and then take the appropriate action that may seem to go against everything that we, our head can see. You know, we don't want to rely on our own understanding or what our, what our eyes see, what our ears hear, because we have to put on God's eyes and God's hearing and God's knowing. That's what that verse transform with the renewing of your mind 
it literally translates to be as if you're putting on God's like helmet and then you're seeing everything from God's perspective, like like a God version of night goggles, you know, <laughs> like yeah. night, you put it on and then you can see at night, you know, you're putting on God goggles and now you hear what he hears, you see what he sees, you know what he knows, and you're basing your understanding on that versus the programming of your mind that you got based from your earthly experience of the beliefs that you've developed from life about who you are and what the world is. And so it's saying don't conform to this world, which means don't hold on to the beliefs that you've developed um, and your perceptions, but transform with the renewal of the mind, which means put on God goggles, and then you can see. So, but the way that God's goggles kind of work is it pulls, it doesn't have words a lot of time. It's, it's just these quiet nudges, this, mm-hmm, mm-mm, mm, you know, it's that quiet nudges inside you that are immediate and, and don't make sense a lot of times. So we need to begin to build trust in our ability to tune into that and one thing that helps with tuning into that is that you have to consume God every day. I, I need to find a better analogy of this, but I say it's like <laughs> drinking alcohol, you know, like when you drink alcohol, <laughs> you get buzzed and you're under the influence, but then you sober up and you're not under, under the influence anymore. So we have to consume every day to be under the influence. And the ways we can consume is anything we do to tap into God. So um, worship, uh, um fellowship with others, reading scripture, quiet contemplation, uh, prayer, all those things. And and when we don't do that, we kind of lose our way. We lose being tuned into that inner voice. And so these are things that can really help us to honor what our spirit is saying inside us and be able to take that action. So we really want to um, guard against blaming God for our own choices. <laughs> In in conclusion, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, that's that's great. Thank you for um, laying that out practically, like what that looks like. Because I know a lot of people are like, okay, how how do I re renew my mind? You know, and right. it's like you said, it's tuning into the word and getting acquainted and familiar with because God's will is in God's word, and when it's in us, then we can feel that guidance toward His 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 will. Um, you yeah. brought up something earlier that I wanted to touch back on and you were just, and you were talking about how, you know, psychology has shown that depending, a lot of times, depending on a person's relationship with their primary, you know, their father or elder male figures in their life, it can really kind of, um, shape the way that they view God or you might view God mm -hmm. and um, just really touching on how people have different backgrounds that they come from and so the way that they interpret and internalize shame is on different levels mm -hmm. and so I've, I've seen this happen often where it's like oh well people just need you know the truth they just need the hardcore truth and they need it this way mm -hmm. and I, I, I just I wish that we would be better at and not that everyone is this way but I wish that we would be better at considering that people are in different places of their life backed mm -hmm. by different kind of attachment you know styles that have happened in their childhood or traumas even that mm -hmm. can really change the way that they're interpreting um mm -hmm. shame you mm -hmm. know uh mm -hmm. and so 
Um, can we talk about how, as people in the church and as lay people or leaders, how our communication should consider orienting to the different levels of self-induced shame varying for everyone, you know, depending mm-hmm. on their background or experience with trauma. Uh, because that kind of straightforward, hardcore, God is this, you know, if you don't do this, this is this. I don't know. Some people, mm-hmm. I don't know. It might give them a kick to get right, I guess. Right. But for others, mm-hmm. that could um, that could rehash out a lot of shame and wounds and internalization in a way that does not lead to true, true change or is help, might not be... Um, healthy for them. Yes. You know, the biggest struggle that we are faced with is that we, we must let go of our efforts to control and our compulsion to rely on our own understanding. Right. And often people will have their own understanding of what they think they should or shouldn't do. And then they take it upon themselves to take the action they think that they should be doing, so to speak. What we want to do instead is really be in this flow with God and always ask, God, do you want me to say this right now? Like if somebody has the gift of discernment, which is where you get knowledge mm-hmm. about something, yeah, um, they, we must stop and say, God, do you, wh- what do you want me to know about this and what do you want me to do about it? It may be that you're being called to intervene in prayer it may be that you're being called to reach out and say, hey, how you doing? How can I support you? It may be that you're being called to speak into that person um, something that you you have knowledge about. But we must know the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit encourages, the Holy Spirit uplifts, it edifies, And that is the flavor that we should have in all of our approaches with people. Will this approach to this person build them up? Will it uplift them? Will it encourage them? Will it help um, bring them closer to the love of Christ? And there are times where we may see that someone has a need, but we are not being directly spoken to by God saying, go to this person and say this. So there's a lot of people that are out there that are taking it upon themselves to do the work of God without pausing and checking in and saying, how do you want me to do this, God? Mm-hmm. And so the analogy I like to use is, is of dancing. It's like some people are sitting and they go, I want to dance with God, but they're waiting for the music to start. And But the way God works is that you have to first start dancing and then the music begins. And then some people will stop to listen to lyrics and then all everything stops. But with continual dance, then you hear the lyrics. So we have to be in this flow, dancing with God to hear the direction. And what I would recommend is like take no action unless you are feeling inside of you in your spirit in this very certain and grounded and clear way that this is meant for you to take this action and then always test it with the fruits of the spirit is this does this build up i i like to say that the fruits of the enemy is to do, to divide deceive destroy and and cause death so if you're giving advice or taking action that would cause division then check yourself if it is based 
if you're potentially deceived, you know, you always have to check that. So the way we can is to say, to go back to knowing the characteristics of God as written in scripture that gives that, um, lays that out that you're supposed to build up, speak life into people of what's possible for them and say, is this aligned with that? And if you're not sure, then have wise people that you can check in with and say, hey, I'm confused about this. Is this something I should be doing or not? And and hopefully those wise people um, you recognize as safe because they also build up and encourage. They are um, gracious and merciful and loving, not judgmental and legalistic and black and white. Those folks are coming from a shame-bound uh, shame perspective. So that that's a whole other dialogue to talk about. Yeah. Um, no, but, I think that's a know. great start, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to answer your question, to answer your question about people coming in different contexts, different cultures, right. it, ca- it, it does pull for us to um, come from a place of love and to not take it upon yourself to determine what should and shouldn't happen because your understanding is this or that. But to really be prayerful and say, God, do you, how do you want me to approach this person? And with some cultures, it's the action, just being of service, helping them, cooking for them, inviting them over, uh, participating in their world. And that is how they experience Christ. So we do have to understand that there is diversity and be culturally sensitive. That's really, yes, all of that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for saying that and culturally sensitive as well, because different cultures have different communication styles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of that plays a role. And just I think the bigger picture is recognizing that everyone is unique and they have their individual differences. And mm-hmm. it's quite possible that this one way go hard or go home is not going to translate, you know, right. for mm-hmm. everybody. And so for those who, you know, for those who are listening that A, are believers and still feel triggered by shame in the church, and B, those who maybe are non-believers but are curious about their faith but feel triggered by the idea of church because mm-hmm. of um, surrounding ideals of shame, or the, or C, those who are living with a mental diagnosis um, and are internalizing shame as well about mm-hmm. their faith mm-hmm. in conjunction with that? Like, what mm-hmm. would you say to those who are feeling this surrounding shame around church and faith um, and that possibly creating a faith crisis in their life? Yeah. I I don't know if you re- recall this, but a while back they had these diet programs in churches, and there was this one called Way Down. And they were these, you would go to this group and you pray and do all this stuff. And their recipe was that if you followed what they were teaching and you prayed and you gave it over to God, you would lose all this weight. And they had all these testimonies. People lost 80 pounds and a hundred pounds. And so I did this and I followed the recipe and I prayed and I was on my knees and I lost nothing. And I, I've never heard of this. Oh my gosh. Like, God, why, you know, did I not ask for forgiveness for everything? Right. Did I not pray? Right. And I mean, I had a true faith crisis because I couldn't understand why it didn't work for me. And then I saw a doctor and I found out that I had a low thyroid and I needed Mm. my thyroid treated. And once I got it treated, all this weight started coming off. 
And it just shows that we cannot attribute everything to spiritual. And this is um, a downside of the church sometimes, that there's a lot of Christian superstition that um, if you pray this, then this will happen, and don't ask for that, or this bad fortune will happen. You know, like they say, don't ask for patience because it will get really bad. You know, this, this <laughs> I think, is Christian superstition. And when we, our God is bigger. We just have to know that. And we have to know that we we may not always understand. You have two prayerful mothers that had two children in a car, and one died and the one survived. And the one parent will say, my child survived because I prayed to God. And the one whose child died says, I pray to God. Why didn't God you answer my prayer? And this is really, really painful. And this is where we have to be careful of attributing everything to the spiritual, that that son survived because of the prayer and the other one died. Why not? You know, this this can get really messy. So we just have to know that it things may not always be how we want and to know that there may be forces at play that we're not mindful of that have to do with our biology, that have to do with our circumstances that are um, contributing to that difficulty that someone's going through. And shame is expressed when we don't know those things and we attribute it to ourselves. So what the church needs to know is that people who have mental health problems, we we do need to medically look at that. They're, they could have sleep apnea, and that's why they're depressed. They could have low testosterone, and that's why they're getting um, unmotivated. They can have ADHD. They can have a learning disorder. Um, fill in the blanks. They have a brain tumor. Uh, and so we want to look at things medically. And somehow the church is okay with the physical examinations of things, but the mental health uh, evaluation has been so mixed up with intention and character and demons and angels that when someone struggles, oh, it's either demonic or it's your character. And we must stop that. And really just think about epilepsy. They once thought that that was demonic possession, but now we know that it's a brain, um, a brain condition. So we must guard against going to describe everything as a spiritual warfare. Everything is demonic. Everything in this superstitious mindset and really just look at it from a scientific point of view as well and take that proper action. Yeah. Um, thank you for pointing that out, just that it can get to those extremes of one or the other. Mm-hmm. And we had a, for those who are listening, can also listen back to a really great episode with Dr. Matthew Stanford on a clinical and biblical understanding of mental health um, because uh, we understand that biblically, like, it's both and like both of these things can exist but technically he brought this up really well like technically biblically like if it is something demonic supposedly then once you pray for that person or or pray for deliverance then everything should be gone right Right. like all the symptoms should immediately should immediately leave they should completely be completely restored to their to their mind you know Mm -hmm. um everything should completely be gone if right. that is the case, biblically. Exactly. But mm-hmm. if you pray for them and you're praying over this and it is persistent and it keeps reoccurring, then 
you can deduce that there is something more going on. And this is what tends to happen that you Mm -hmm. see in church that I've seen. And that's one of the reasons I got into mental health because Mm -hmm. I was in the church serving and, you know, you're praying for folks and then they're coming back with the same habits, issues, conditions. And, you know, and, um, and just needing more resources and tools and like you said, medically assessed. And so Mm -hmm. thank you Mm -hmm. so much for, um, for helping to destigmatize that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, There's one thing I would add to that is, yeah, and that's what we're learning with the neuroplasticity is that right. when you think a certain thought over and over and over again, it's like a hiking trail. You hiked up this pathway, so it gets really established, and right. the other ones are not established yet. So if someone is um, th- having a lot of thoughts that are aligned with depression, you have a brain that kind of shaped around those thoughts, and we we can reshape that, but it takes an intentional effort over time. It says it takes 45 days in general. Um, if you practice new affirmation, new belief systems, that over time, those grooves start to shift and you create a different trail. So if someone is struggling with depression, they pray about it, and but their brain has had this um, habit, which mm-hmm. the church calls strongholds. Mm-hmm. And now what we understand about strongholds is that this is just a really established neural pathway. So be patient with the process and really begin the journey of reshaping your brain through prayer, through um, focusing on gratitude, focusing on positive things, focusing on your identity in Christ, the renewed person that you are. And over time, those habits will begin to reshape. But if we indulge those mental habits, those those addictive thoughts, um, the 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 habit to focus on problems, it will just keep defaulting back to the other pathway. So mm-hmm. this could be something where you don't get immediate relief per se with the right. prayer, but you can. Um, but know that over practice and over time, doing this mental discipline, you can begin to reshape your brain. Thank you so much for mentioning that. So good. Oh my gosh. Um, we've touched on so many things here, so many things beyond what I even planned. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And so I'm so appreciative of you um, and everything that you've shared here today. Uh, for those who are listening, I really hope that this has brought some more perspective to mm-hmm. um, to just the roots of shame. And if you've been living with shame, um, just rethinking it, you know, and also realizing that it's just it, it's a common it happens and mm-hmm. building that resilience, like you said, of just not internalizing it to our identity but realizing all of these things as a human experience um that we can learn from and even propel us to do some good in the world launching from our experience Mm -hmm. um and so thank you so much dr horn is there any recent work or resources that you have available or would like to share you know your social media all that good stuff Yeah. Well, I'm currently putting together some webinars on healing from shame. And so I'm encouraging people to sign up on my uh, email list and so that they can get information when the courses start launching. And so come on over to my website. All my handles are Dr. Sean Horn and my website is drshawnhorn.com and just sign up and um, and then when those open up, you'll get, they'll get that information. And then I have my other, I have my podcast, the inspired living podcast, 
and which hopefully you're going to be on soon. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm there. Yes. And, and then, um, uh, yeah, those are mainly it. I do have a free downloadable shame-free, uh, parenting book. It's actually a chapter from the book that I wrote and that I'm editing right now that will soon come out again or will be published. Oh my gosh. Um, love it. But for now, I just decided to take the one chapter that really defined what is healthy shame and unhealthy shame and make this available for for folks for free. So Mm. they can, when they sign up on my email list, um, there's a link that says, you know, to get the book and then they'll get the PDF file to download. And they can also get it from my website as well. So I made that available as my gift to everybody. (laughs) Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. We'll be sure to include all of that in the show notes below. So you guys be sure to check that out and follow the work that she's doing. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And thanks guys for listening. Until next time.